Welcome to Curito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. My guest today is a journalist, editor, chair of the world's 50 best, and of course, food influencer, Jamila Robinson. Hi, Jamila. Happy New Year, and welcome to Curito Connects. Happy New Year to you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to hear your voice. Oh, I am so excited that you agreed to come on today as well. Uh, well. Well, I like to also tell people how I usually meet my guests. So we got to meet uh, in July, no, June, it was it July, July? Oh, July 4th. It was July 4th. July 4th, 2022. July 4th, 2022 in Copenhagen. Thanks to our mutual friend, Tate. Hi, Tate. <laughs> Um, and we got to experience Renee's uh, cooking at Noma and visit Mad and uh, talked about food and art and being a middle child and all this fun stuff within a span of three days or something like that. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on to converse with me today on how food is an art form uh, we all participate in and how food has shaped your journalism career over the years. So I don't want to like give away too much because I feel like we already spent an hour before me pressing record here. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners today for those who are unfamiliar with uh, you and your work. Um, and so I'm going to leave you to, to start there and then, you know, well, I'll come in with um, my other questions for you. Well, hi, everybody out there. I'm Jamila Robinson. Um, I am an assistant managing editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and But I spend a lot of my time as chair of the James Beard Foundation Journalism Committee, which is the highest honor in um, American uh, food media. And I'm also the USA East Academy Chair for the World's 50 Best Restaurants. And what we do is help wrangle all the voters who decide which restaurants are transforming the restaurant industry across the entire globe, which restaurants are making significant changes, setting trends, rethinking ingredients, and rethinking the entire industry. And it's a real pleasure to do this kind of work because we like to say in journalism that it's the first draft of history. But when you look long term and you see things like World's 50 Best or James Beard Awards, you we are setting the trends for the entire industry, talking about emerging leaders, emerging chefs, restaurants that we want to see more of, things that are going to have incredible impact over the next decade. It's really exciting, and um, and it's really become the joy of my life. <laughs> I feel like you just gave yourself a great introduction that I didn't. Re- I sh- I felt like I should have done that for you earlier, <laughs> but I loved how you explained what you do. It's really exciting because it's really what's shaping the future of food and the industry and restaurants and bars, etc. <laughs> I love talking about the future. And one of the things I love to say is that 
as a storyteller, stories are told by people who can tell, who know how to tell them. And as individuals, nobody's a better person to capture who you are. And it's something that it gets really exciting to teach people how to become better storytellers and how to share their vision and project that out to the rest of the world. Um, so don't apologize. Thrilled <laughs> um, with the introduction because it's actually sometimes it's nice to have here to hear other people say the things that you really think about yourself. So it's always lovely to be introduced. However, that comes. Um, however, that manifests. Well, storyteller, uh, which is so great because I think that is something that you try really in your work to also um, showcase, right, for the chefs and the restaurants. Um, so, but today it's all about you. So, <laughs> so we're going to storytell. wants to hear about me. We're going to storytell about you a little bit. Um, now that you've told us what you do, uh, let's go further back and talk about you know, where you grew up, um, your first memory of food or why that has been so significant to you. Uh, were you always on this path, you know, with journalism, with food, or was this a complete 180 that people you grew up with had no idea this is what you were going to do? You know, (laughs) I'm still not sure if my mother knows what I do for a living. (laughs) Um, I, I, journalism is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I wanted to be, um, actually I wanted to be a classical music critic and I grew up playing music. Uh, my family, a lot of people in my family are musicians, very successful. And so it was around music all the time. And, but as a 10 year old, there was this thing that was happening in the world and his name is Michael Jackson. And I, when I was supposed to be practicing whatever music I was practicing, I was practicing Billie Jean and beat it on my violin. Like plucking that out on the strings. At the same time, Michael Jackson was in the news every day, in the newspaper, in magazines, everything. And I realized as a 10-year-old that the only people who got to talk to Michael Jackson were journalists. And I said, I got to do that. (laughs) And now it has been the only thing that I've ever wanted to do. And it was because I wanted to talk to Michael Jackson. Um, As I got older, I really wanted to write about music. I wanted to write about why people play. I wanted to ask musicians questions. I wanted to talk to the people who sit in pit orchestras. I wanted to um, explain that there's almost anything that is happening in your life can be explained through opera. I wanted to explain that Sondheim, it's like way more difficult to play Sondheim than um, Mozart. Um, what you hear, what you think you're hearing when you hear West Side Story, the notes, they sound like that, but that's not the notes, aren't the notes that you play. And I loved that challenge of absorbing 
a bunch of information and projecting that out into the world. And because that's what musicians do and that's what um, that's what journalists do. You observe a bunch of information, information and you project that out on the world. You absorb a bunch of notes and you project that out into the world. And it was something, and I wanted to convey that. And so it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, I was a very, very good student. I had got, had all the best internships, um, went to college and studied journalism and, um, um, went to college and studied journalism and, I wanted to learn as much as I can, I could about art, about music and, and be, and then realizing that anything that you're interested in becomes a great path for journalism. And it still excites me to this moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying all that to answer your first question. <laughs> <laughs> my first memories of food, my, um, <laughs> a lot of people love telling the stories of like, oh, my mother was such a great cook. I was, my mother was not a great cook. Um, it wasn't something that she was very interested in. And, um, and she's somebody, even to this day, that food doesn't excite her. Um, I learned to cook um, with my grandmother, who was a really, really wonderful cook. Um, but I remember just not liking food, not liking to eat unless I was at my grandmother's house um, because the vegetables were fresh. And, you know, my, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and so convenience food, canned goods, TV dinners really helped a lot of women go into the workplace. And my mother yeah. worked and she wanted, she had a career. She wanted a career. Those are things that she really wanted to do. And spending a lot of time in the kitchen was still isn't exciting to her. Um, but my grandmother, different generation, different era, you had to learn how to make all of these things. And the first thing she, I re, the first thing I remember learning how to make was lemon tarts. Um, and she gave me a quarter cup of sugar and a couple of egg whites and, um, a whisk. I don't think it was, a, it was like a thing you had to turn like a, like uh, a yeah, yeah, the old school kind a old school hand beater. And she said, you've got to do that 150 times, 150 reps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, two, three, four. And, and that's how we got meringue. Um, and I remember that as if it was yesterday. And I think about that every time I make a lemon tart. It's still my favorite dessert. It's the first thing I learned how to make. And my grandmother is not one of those people. Oh, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. She was always very precise, very science oriented in terms of how she talked about food. Like the measurements were very precise. You had to spoon and level if you were going to make a cake. You had to be quiet. And it was the first place that I, you know, I, they always told me I talk too much. Oh, here, go do this thing. Go whip this meringue. Because you're probably talking too much. Um, but I found so much beauty in making the meringue and the turning on the broiler of the oven and scorching the meringue. I do it with a torch now. But all of those things are very, very tender memories for me. And 
even though my mother was not that interested in food and she wouldn't get that excited about like, oh, like my grandmother and I would make a batch of oatmeal cookies and my mom would be like, okay, whatever. Um, my mom would actually leave me to my devices. Um, she'd let me walk to the library and go get cookbooks and I could just go and do whatever I wanted in and, and because my mother wasn't interested in cookbooks, but I would bring them home from the library and I would test things out. And I, so I always found cookbooks very interesting um, because that wasn't something that we did at home. I would have to go to my grandmother's house and then my grandmother would say, oh yes, we are going to make this recipe. Um, sometimes it would make a very, it would be very complicated and we'd have to go to the farmer's market and get ingredients. And though that, so that tenderness um, I still find really beautiful when um, I look at recipes because it makes me think of being in the kitchen with my grandmother or if we had to make a recipe more precise um, or if she put comments in a book to say, oh, this is, you need to temper the eggs or you need to, um, you know, the, a, a quarter a quarter teaspoon of baking soda leveled off might be a little better. And that, that process of learning always excited me. So when I, so when I became, um, like maybe in my second, second or third year of my career, and I was given, um, the food section to work on, I really got to know the beauty of food writing because everything in it was relatable. I don't care if it was this, the, um, the snap of peas or I remember writing, having to write a headline for a lemon, uh, a, a story in the, in the winter about citrus and how that wakes you up. And as I mentioned, I love a lemon tart and the headline I put on it was zing. Um, because that's the feeling that I got when I read this story and I saw the beautiful cut open lemons and um, cara cara oranges and limes and grapefruit. And I, and it still excites me to think about that presentation and how exciting it was for readers to see something really sunny and bright in the middle of winter. And I love still to this day how beautiful food writing is because of the way that it connects people. I love asking people how their family cook rice because you learn everything you need to know about them, about their culture, their background, their social or economic status. When I tell people that, oh, you know, they're like, oh, my mother made like this beautiful jollof. And I'm like, we had rice aroni. Um, it's, it cements you and orients you in a way that is always relatable to other people. And then you can share. Now I make a Middle Eastern tadig because I grew up in Michigan around a lot of Middle Eastern people. And those are the flavors that I find most familiar fatouche and tadig and shawarma and gosh, I should speak Arabic, but I don't, but I sure do know how to ask for all the food words. Um, so 
growing up in Michigan around all of these flavors in an international city where every weekend we go to the farmer's market and we would have Greek food. Um, we'd have a Euro or we'd have pita or we'd have harissa, we'd have octopus. And I'll never forget somebody in college saying to me, Jamila, you eat things that I didn't know were food. And I'm like, wow, know what that means. <laughs> like, it's so interesting to see how in the, like, I look back on those conversations and I think about, oh, there are all of these, oh, there was all of this exposure to all of these different kinds of foods and experiences that really have shaped my understanding of different kinds of cuisines and how they move through the universe. It's very fascinating. And I feel like I'm, I circled around and haven't really answered your question. <laughs> No, not at all. I I was I I was very uh focused on your storytelling with the zing and the words you used and I was like, "Man, I'm starting to get hungry now. A lemon tart sounds delicious." Um and and don't worry, this is where I come in, right? I am going to then ask you uh how come you didn't end up becoming a music critic? Uh and at, like at what point did did you kind of go, oh, actually, my thing is with food. And how, like, how did that switch happen? Um, it's so funny. Dr. Louise Ritchie, um, who was um, an editor at the Detroit Free Press, where I had my first internship and second internship, I was like, um, spent a lot of time there. And um, one of her assignments for me was to, I was so focused on classical music. Um, like, like singularly focused, and she really wanted me to branch out. And as something I like to say, she wanted me to lift my gaze. So she put me in pop music. <laughs> um, and it was so. And I was partnered with a music writer, um, who gave me a bunch of reviews. I wrote one of the first reviews of Boys to Men. It's like, oh, they have a song called Motown Philly see what it sounds like. And I wrote about them. And then I really started to have a better understanding of, of, of pop music. And then the beautiful thing about journalism is that you have to become an instant expert because I, but because I was working in the features department, I had to learn about health and I had to learn about art and I had to learn um, about science and all of a lot of things that I'm already interested in, but you have this level of expertise and you're doing it every day and there's this rote inconsistency. Um, so I ha did have the great fortune of, of being able to dip in and dip out of these different interests that I have. And when I worked in Atlanta, I actually wrote a lot of um, classical music reviews. Um, and even I was running the features department at the time, but be, I have such a deep love of opera that these are um, muscles that they would let me flex um, from uh, now and again. And I love trying to bring a contemporary lens to classical music because I think I think classical music, we, we need to talk about it in current terms. And... Um, and it was a lot of fun to write about an, an opera like Lucia de Lamamore that is this piece about 
this woman who's betrayed and she goes crazy and she murders a whole bunch of people. And um, the way that I wrote about it was that, no, actually these people that these men that she was involved with were trash and they were very mean to her and she lost it. And, and I wanted to come at like from a place of empathy and a place of different lens of understanding and then talk about how, I mean, it was basically like, what is that show snapped <laughs> like, like um, on those lifetime movies. Um, and it was like, I wanted to talk about it in terms of like true crime and, um, and sort of what happens to people when they're, um, when they have um, anxiety and don't have um, proper mental health or what have you. So, and so I had a lot of fun doing that. I still have a lot of fun writing about music. Um, I, you know, I, spend most spend I've spent most of my career as an editor helping other people craft their stories so I've managed the music writers and I've managed the arts writers and um I've really been able to live vicariously through a lot of really great reporters because I've been their um I've been their editor um and being able to see bands that I knew we're going to be stars, end up winning Grammys the next year. Um, and I still think I'm a pretty good um, predictor of, of, <laughs> of the Grammys um, because I, I do know so much about music. And I still, um, I still live in that world um, quite a bit. Um, and a lot of these different genres of art, you know, journalism, food, music, they all have similar tentacles they um and similar afflictions <laughs> um but they're they, they a lot of the things and a lot of the challenges and a lot of the ideas are not that different and when you are involved in different parts of the arts worlds you start to see the overlap but you also can see the opportunities um a lot of uh, a lot of chefs and musicians have um, similar, similar sensibilities. And so every now and then, you, you know, before the pandemic, you know, there were a lot of eat and greets. Um, uh, a, a, those were kinds of things, you know, arts, beats and eats, lots of festivals like that. So I think those worlds all intersect. Oh, okay. So that's kind of, but you kind of just, ended I mean you still do music too because as an editor you cover a lot but how did you end up kind of becoming you know like a food influencer you know and then sitting on these <laughs> award panels um and before you uh kind of answer that question I wanted to kind of go in there a little bit more and just ask like in this process of your journey like career-wise and first personal wise um were there any impact because career to connect is all about impactful moments and challenges. So I just wanted to ask like, were there, was there any particular incident that kind of gave you the aha or like really shaped how you view, um, you know, what you're contributing as a, as an editor, as a journalist uh, to what you're doing and, and for yourself too, as how you, how you view the world and, and how, you know, where your values lie. 
Um, I know that's a little bit of a deeper, <laughs> deeper, deeper dive. It's both, both. So the answer to that, I think is, is to both questions. It's, there's one answer. Um, in 2006, when I was working for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on the food section, our, our section was nominated for James Beard Award for the best section in the U.S. And um, so we were finalists. And, and at the time, I didn't know what the James Beard Awards were. Um, like, oh, there's, there's this thing, that you, and you have to go to New York. I go to New York um, for the awards. Um, my section did not win. Um, but I was looking around the room and I was so confused because these were the best food journalists, the best of food media, the best of food TV, best of the best, best of books, all in the same room. And I was so confused because there was me, uh, Tony Tipton Martin, uh, the editor of, uh, America's, uh, of Cook's Country, America's Test Kitchen and maybe three other black people. And I was so confused. I said, this is the best of the food world. Why are there only four or five black people, probably one or two Asian Americans? I was so confused. Um, and I, and I remember the tone that I said, as much as we like to eat and I'm looking around <laughs> the room and I just didn't understand what was happening. And I had so many questions how are the awards chosen? Who's on the panel? Why is, why are there no people of color here? It's in New York. I'm confused. And I had so many questions for um, the committee chair, not about whether or not I won because I, I didn't care about that as much, but I was disturbed that I was one of the few black people in the room and these were supposed to be the best black journalists, these are supposed to be the best journalists in the country and there was no representation. And so the committee lead said to me, well, you know, maybe you should think about being a judge. And so the next year they invited me to be on a, a, a judge. And I was, I was, um, I was judging one of the uh, contests and all the stories were the same. They all had a similar tone. They all had like similar writing. And they were all similarly boring. And I didn't understand what I was supposed to be judging. All of these things are the same. Like I'm not excited about any of these stories. So then I was asking, well, what, what is the criteria that I'm really supposed to be judging? This against that. And I was noticing that the winners were stories that I found somewhat offensive, stereotypical, boring. And I wanted to know how these decisions were made because, the, uh, because after watching certain winners win James Beard Awards for certain kinds of stories, all the news organizations started doing the same thing. Oh my, and like, for example, it would be, oh, this, this guy just got out of prison where he learned to cook and now he's opening a restaurant and somebody's helping him cook on the line. And oh, aren't we should, supposed to be excited? And that year, there were 50 of those stories. The, the following year, there's 50 similar kinds of stories. And I thought, well, this is already, this story has already won. Why are we lauding these kinds of stories and not different kinds of stories? And then 
the committee said, well, maybe you need to join the committee <laughs> and you can help spark those decisions, help shape those decisions. And I am a big believer that if you can't beat them, join them. If you really want change, you have to be someone who's willing to take the action steps. So I was invited to join the committee in 2014 or 15. Um, and I had so many more questions about why do we call this award that thing? Um, if, if, we, if, we are, if we want to have awards that are going to shape the future awards, then maybe we can't always laud the people who win all the time. So if we, so the biggest news organizations, New York Times, LA Times, and the Atlantic, they always, they were, they were winning the best um, publication of the year, publication every single year, to the degree where it kind of felt as if we were putting smaller publications that might have been, been doing more dynamic work, more interesting work, and we were putting them up against the New York Times that has all the resources in the world. And, and, and not being happy about our decisions. So if you can't change the people, you change the people. Well, if you can't change the awards, you change the awards. And we decided to make a huge change to the awards and saying, we are no longer going to have a publication of the year. We are going to have an award that is an emerging voice because those are things we want to see more of. We want someone who's, um, who's, a great writer who's a, a very, very good writer, but is changing the industry in some way so that we can see more of them and so we can spark more people to write that way. And that was the thing that has been the most significant part of my journey is to be, to ask questions in a way that are on, that's on the precipice of change. What's the point of asking the question if you're not going to change it? If, if something is, if you don't feel like this is the way that an organization should be working, then how can we actually put the, the pieces in place to make that change happen? And it's been so gratifying to be among a small group of people who wants to not only help facilitate the highest honor in food media, but also to be the people who are saying, we want the change to happen and we want to give you the tools so that you can make changes in your own organizations so that your writing changes, your editing changes, your, the entire system changes. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes people want a big gigantic shift and a switch to happen, but I like to use that first trip to James Beard in 2006 of being one of the only black people there to 2017 when there were so many black people there. The DJ turned it on. Frankie Beverly and Mays before I let go and we could do the electric slide and I didn't have to go and like round up a bunch of people saying, okay, I'm going to get the DJ. We're going to do the electric slide. 
we just did the electric we just did the electric slide and the music came on that was in 2017 in 2022 we had salsa electric slide and salsa there was this huge shift in the not only the number of people of color but people of all kinds of backgrounds and it was so exciting not only because they were there but we were all in community with each other around food mm. that was a process and it's so beautiful to think about just how something as simple as saying well why are there no black people here <laughs> And and seeing how that can impact the industry and how you have to look inward so that you can look outward and then you can see the space for change. And it's been so exciting and so gratifying. And all of that work, you know, some of it has been very hard and it's been a lot of volunteer hours. Um, but it's so exciting to see the change happen and it's something that I find inspiring. So when I look at the work that I'm doing with World's 50 Best um, is to help, again, to continue to shape the future and to give people the tools for deeper transformation. It's very exciting. I'm getting goosebumps just listening to this storyline. <laughs> goosebumps are good. Sounds okay. Like, positive goosebumps. Like I'm, I just like I'm sitting here, like clapping my hands, being like, "Oh my god, I'm so proud of you," you know. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you were saying from 2006 to 2017, that's like a decade, you know. And then, but it's just, but it shows you. Um, and I and I wrote, you know, I took some notes while you were talking. You know, I, I love how you were talking about if you can't beat them, just join them. And you did mention that you know it does require a lot of voluntary time, right? Because it's not like it's not like you going like, wait, I have all these questions and I'm very curious, like, why is it from A to Z, you, you know, you list all these things and I'm sure they were kind of looking at you going like, oh, okay, she makes some good points, but, you know, and then it's not like they're going to... Yeah, and it's not like they're going to be like, okay, well, we'll pay you hourly for you to come in here and, you know, rally up and make these changes and tell us what you think needs to be implemented, right? And I mean, it took time. It took groups of people who were on board with the idea, right, who supported it. And then, and then you know, like, so it's almost like finding your tribe and, like, finding the community of people, right? Like, it's really much so. Absolutely. Absolutely. My skating coach, I had a really great skating coach who said, it's a process. Oh, can we talk about the skating coach thing? You didn't talk about skating earlier. I didn't know if we wanted to talk about this, but I'm sure all of the, you know, all your friends and people who know you know about your skating, former skating career. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, so, so I, um, skating career it's so funny because it's been long enough that now I can I can say that but I you know I could all you know I'm from Michigan so if you don't skate you have no friends you that's what you do <gasps> after school does so, Tate skate oh I'm sure he does I'm sure he I'm sure he does Tate you you've got a hockey you've got some hockey skates I'm pretty sure <laughs> um I I don't know if Tate but if 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 Tate does not skate we can work on that um okay. but I, I wanted to learn. I was in love with Michelle Kwan. 
she was my hero. I just thought she was dazzling. I fall in love with people very easily. I just thought she was such a kind heart. I loved her skating. I would just, I just, the way she just floated around the rink and the way, like, with, before she went into a jump with such confidence and moxie, like, I want to do that. <laughs> and I signed up for skating lessons um, for my 25th birthday. That's what I gave myself for my 25th birthday. And my goal was wow. to skate backward. I wanted to do proper backward crossovers. I wanted to just not do like those swizzle um, things. Um, we're we're both doing that motion, um, but you know, sort of that backward wavy thing that people do. Like the, back, the backward oh, V. Is that the, like backward the backward V? Makes it yeah. like a little bit of a circle. I would, did not want to do that. I wanted to do those beautiful cross backward crossovers. So if I went to public skate, it would look like I could do something, and that was my goal. What they don't tell you is that once you can go backward, that first they don't tell you that going backward is easier than going forward. Once you learn to go backward and you realize how easy it is, then you can turn. And then if you can turn, you can jump. Like that's the first, so the first thing you learn is a turn. You learn, you learn the turn to go backward and then you go backward. Now you're getting around the rink and you're pulling all this momentum. If you can turn, you can spin. And if you can spin, you can jump. And, you know, tens of thousands of dollars later, <laughs> I was hooked. I was hooked so quickly because it, I learned to skate backward in maybe four or six weeks. And I just kept at it. And, and, you, in- and you started competing? And I yes, because once you learn the turn, once you learn the turns and the spins, you learn the jumps. And I'm actually a good jumper. I learn the jumps very quickly. And I they like first you learn the sow cow, then you learn the lutz and the loop and the flip and the lutz, and then you learn the axle. And you're like, okay. And then they're like, okay, let's see if you can put two rotations in it. And um, so I started competing on the adult circuit. I love what did. Your coach say, sorry, because I, I kind of deterred here. I just, I wanted you to talk about skating. And then you said, my skating coach. So let's talk about what your skating coach said. It's a process, not an event. And I, I just walked you through the process. The process is you learn to turn so that you can go backward. You learn to go backward so that you can step into a spin. Once you learn the spin, you get that spin off the ice and you land it. But everything has a landing position, whether it is a spin, a stroking, whatever it is, it has, you have to land the jump and you have to stay centered. And these are such great philosophies of life. But she says, but everything you do is a process, not an event. You land a big jump and it like looks all beautiful and, 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 you know, you have to smile and it looks, that's a process. Getting to the point where you're smiling after you land that thing is a process. And I think it's such a great lesson to remember that hard work, significant change, radical change, incremental change is all a process. And it doesn't hit with a light switch. 
there's a whole process, even when you hit the light switch, there's a whole process that it's going through before the light actually comes on. And we forget that piece of it because we want that instant gratification. But I think that if we go through the steps and go through the process and we ask all the questions of, well, why is this like this? Why do you do it this way? And, and being able to push back and say, well, that doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that worked great when you, like my grandmother tells me that my sweet potato pies, they don't, they're not, they don't stand up the way well I'm actually not gonna like whip a whip sweet potatoes by hand and run them through a fine sieve I'm not doing that I don't have time it takes her all day she my grandmother's almost 93 she's still out here making pies I put that soldier in the food processor and I do it in a couple of minutes and I pour the stuff in the (laughs) in a blind bake shell and it's but she wants me to go through a longer process I'm looking for efficiencies for that process. I'm looking for change that's going to make my life better. That's, I think, what we're trying to do when we are looking for significant change, whether that's in the food world or, or world or what have you. Mm. Oh, I love that. I, I, I loved how you kept saying about process because I wanted to ask you um, through all this, and you've illustrated so much. It's like your life has been so colorful. I love like everything you've covered. It's like from, you know, from music to skating, to food, to writing, to, you know, and all the, all the stuff that you, you know, it's like, it's so colorful. I just like your wardrobe. If yeah. for those who don't know, you should follow her on Instagram. She has the best wardrobe. Um, but I, <laughs> that's a side, side note, but I just thought I'd throw, I thought I'd throw it in there. We've actually only met once in person, right? <laughs> But I together, so it was it was yeah. We we just we we actually didn't get to go shopping together. We would have totally like ripped the city apart. No, but we 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 did not shop together. But I think we bought the same dress. I think we we went designers boutique and uh and. Yeah, we did that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's another topic. But I wanted to talk about process. So for you, um, when you look back, um, what has kept you grounded uh, in going through all these different processes, right? Like Mm -hmm. whether it was, um, you know, your own personal stuff in your life, uh, to your career, to these different transitional uh, periods that you've, you've gone through, right? So like, I don't know, maybe I, I, th- I mean, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, at some point you could have become a professional violinist maybe, or, you know, continued with the skating. Um, you could have maybe spinned off and decided to be an author, like, you know, just write books, right. Instead of doing journalism and, you know, so in all of this as a process, what keeps you grounded in terms of just being like, I'm going to stick through it because I, th- this is the end goal I'd like to see happen or, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I'm, I have a hard time letting go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, non, non attachment doesn't exist in your vocabulary. Partly it's curiosity. You know, when you're a journalist, you're constantly feeding your curiosity. 
And curiosity is something that really keeps me grounded. Um, I'm very self-aware. I'm aware of like that there are just things that I don't know, but I make an effort to try to learn as much as I can about different things. And that keeps me grounded when I know that there's something I don't know. I'm very, um, I'm very aware of that. Um, I'm also very aware of my, um, (laughs) my, my, it's hard for me to let go because I, there are things that I want to see in the world. There's change that I want to see in the world. There's stories that I want to see unfold. And what keeps me grounded is that I work with other people. As an editor, you are a collaborator all the time. You're collaborating on projects, on ideas, and seeing those come to fruition is so satisfying. It it really does keep me grounded, and it keeps me from being proprietary. Oh, this is my thing. No, it's really of the collective. Um, my team won an Emmy this year for um, a really beautiful project um, about um, about joy, and and it was something that came out of post George Floyd and the reporters just saying, "I just really want to see something beautiful," and it was such a high goal. What does that even mean? I want to write something beautiful, and it, and it's and it comes from an African American lens, but it's it was really just a project about joy. And it's called Wildest Dreams, and we just wanted to see like happy black people <laughs> after George Floyd, and we wrote this series of essays and well, something we call an anthology because there was a lot of manifestations of artwork and different kinds of story forms in it um, that included video, multimedia, and whatnot. But it won an Emmy. And it's one thing to be honored for your best work, but it's another thing to go through the process, have curiosity, understand other people's goals, understand their stories, and help them to tell them in such a way that they feel like they are doing their best work. That's always been more important to me than my own, um, like achievements or like you're putting your name out there on awards. You know, it's like, it doesn't make me feel all that comfortable. Um, even I'm very critical of my own writing. Um, people like it, but I'm shrugging my shoulders. I, I don't always love it. And I know that it's, I know that it's good if I like it. It's like when I cook something and if I like it, I know that it's good. And that's all that matters to me. I'm like, oh, I like it. This must be good because I like it. I feel good about it. And, and having a good sense of self, sense of self-awareness. I tell people all the time, like, I don't think imposter syndrome is a thing for me that's like I've never felt that way I've always been very secure and knowing and I know who I am and what keeps me grounded is being able to work with people who bring me closer to myself they help my work become a greater manifestation of what I want to see in the world and when it 
lands, it's really beautiful and exciting. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's like landing a beautiful jump. Um, you just, you, you, you know when the plane has landed and you're excited because you're going to go off and do something else. And I'm, what also keeps me grounded is that I figure skate. And if you miss the jump and you fall down, you get up. You get up and you keep going. Um, you still have to finish the program. You still have to stay centered. Um, you still have to curtsy to the judges. <laughs> um, even if you miss all your jumps. But there is a process even to missing all of your jumps. And, it, and, and that is how I move through the world. I don't take myself too seriously. I apologize if I do something wrong. Um, I, I try to be kind. I try to be aware. I try to be um, open. Um, I'm actually quite, I'm talking a lot, but I'm quite introverted. I'm just not shy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a I'm like a chatty introvert, but all of those things keep me grounded. Um, and they I stay grounded in curiosity and grounded in beauty. And I've got great. I love that. I'm trying to be mindful of the time. Um, so I I thank you for sharing all of that. I think we could keep going, and you're such a great storyteller. <laughs> I think we kind of pivoted a little bit um, from the food as an art form, but obviously that is the overarching umbrella uh, to this conversation and to the work you do. Um, but I wanted to kind of uh, bring a close to this conversation by asking you a few questions. Um, I'm going to change, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of change my questions for you that I normally would ask um, my other guests. Uh, I can tell you what I usually ask my other guests, uh, which is usually like, oh, what keeps you grounded, which you just answered. Um, or I say, what do you tell your younger self what you know now? Uh -huh. um, but, I, but I feel like I'm going to not ask you to answer those ones. I want you to share with us uh, your favorite cookbooks, uh, your favorite reads, and what music are you listening to in this first week of 2023? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I... Oh my gosh. Oh, see, I'm not even asking you what are your favorite restaurants or predictions for this year. I'm not going to ask that. I'm going to ask. I want to be. <laughs> I, I love, 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 love um, a book called Justice of the Pies. Um, okay. That's by Maya Camille Broussard. And it's a beautiful cookbook. Um, I love pies. For those of you who don't know me, if you follow me on Instagram, you will see a lot of pies. I have a lot of philosophical thoughts about pie. Um, I am a pie person. I believe deeply cakes are cel for celebrations, but pies are, are for sharing. I love pie. Lemon tart is my favorite pie. Maya Camille Broussard's Justice of the Pies is a beautiful, 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 beautiful book. Um, well, thanks to you, I also made chicken pot pie for the first time because I saw you. <laughs> I saw you post on Instagram, and I'm like, "Oh, I'm gonna make that too." Pot pie, pie, two minutes. I used, I, used, <laughs> I used Taiwanese smoked chicken instead of a rotisserie chicken. It was which delicious. Worked. 
It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> I was like, how can I have Taiwanese chicken in my pot pie next time? When you come visit us in Taiwan. <laughs> I'm coming to Taiwan. That, that is, it is on, it is on my agenda. Uh, other cookbooks I love are um, Jubilee um, by Tony Tippin Martin. Um, it's all about celebration. It's also another beautiful, significant book. And um, I, I'm, I was looking for, I'm looking at my cookbooks behind me because I wanted to throw a wild card at you, but I think it's upstairs. And um, that's but, okay because you can tell me later and I'll put it in the episode resources below yeah, so people well, can find How about it. we do that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's cookbooks, favorite reads or, or you know, podcasts or whatever it is that you like to refer to or when you talk to people you meet, you're like, oh, you must read this, you know, or like I've been reading this for years. <laughs> like, There's a newsletter called Secret Breakfast that I absolutely love. It's a really, really wonderful well-curated, beautifully written newsletter that comes out of Italy. It's written in English. It is wonderful. And I think it gives such a good sweep of um, the restaurant world. Um, and there's always a really lovely breakfast recipe in it. I love that. Um, I love that newsletter. It's wonderful. I'm going to subscribe later after we finish. <laughs> And, and music, it's funny. I um, am listening to the, I, I'm, I'm listening right now. I tend to listen to the same song over and over and over again until I get tired of it. Um, I do the same. I'm listening to an old song and it's called The Glamorous Life by Sheila E. She wears a warm, um, a warm coat, a long coat of mink, even in the summertime. Um, and everybody knows from her coy little wink, the girl's got a lot on her mind. So <laughs> I love this song and it hits different when you're like my age now. Cause I'm like, cause the song's like 30 years old or 40 years old. And, um, and it's sort of such an interesting lens, not only into the eighties, but then like you look back on your life and you see how glamorous it becomes and it's and she says um love is um uh something like love is the answer and it's glamorous and i and i never had really thought about how beautiful the lyrics are prince wrote the wrote that song and i've been listening to that over and over and over and over again um and otherwise like i really like coldplay um, I love their music. I love, I think Chris Martin can write the heck out of a song. And so I've been listening to a lot of Coldplay. Oh, love is glamorous. And I think that's a great way to wrap the conversation up today. <laughs> I, I, we can do, we could probably go and do this like for the rest of the, <laughs> for the rest of the day. It's so much fun talking well, to Well, I think I'm just going to throw this fun idea at you I think you should start a podcast <laughs> um, it's funny you say that because I'm actually going to be working with um, a really wonderful friend of mine Gabriel Ornelas and he has a wonderful podcast called On the Pass which also is a great listen um, that covers the restaurant industry and um, so we're going to be doing a little bit of work together um, and and 
uh, a, a podcast series. Um, I'm going to be his guest for a few weeks and doing a series. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I love, um, I really do believe, I think everybody should have a podcast if for no other reason, just to spend some time listening to your own voice and taking the time to like be aware and internal and you take some time to listen to your own voice it gives you an opportunity to project that back out into the world. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. <laughs> to talk so much. I have so much to say. <laughs> I love it. Well, I wish you all the best this year and uh, look forward to having you in Taiwan. Maybe we can do something here too when you come out here. <laughs> I'm doing a little we dance. Do like the art, we can do like an event where Curito hosts you and we do like the art of storytelling. I think that would be super fun. I think that would be super fun. It is a joy to talk to you. It is not only, I just think you're such a light. I love the work that you're doing. I'm so proud of you. Um, so thank you for spending some time with me. Um, we had such a great time in Copenhagen and I cannot wait to see you in Taiwan. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Curito Connects. For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired, and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects. Thank you.